Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Ryan Jacobson on the show. Ryan is the CEO of the Fresno County Farm Bureau and is no stranger to agriculture either. He is a fourth generation of two Fresno County farm families and also has previously served as the Fresno County Farm Bureau's governmental affairs coordinator and as the organization's membership coordinator beginning in 2004. Jacobson is an honors graduate of CSU Fresno with a master's degree in business administration and a bachelor's degree in animal science. He currently serves as president of the Fresno Irrigation District Board of Directors, secretary slash treasurer of the Kings River Water Association, chair of Fresno County's Agricultural Lands Conservation Committee, and serves on the boards of the California Farmland Trust, as well as the Rotary Club of Fresno. He's a busy guy. This may be one of my favorite conversations because Ryan is such a charming, knowledgeable, and down-to-earth guy. There are probably places where we could have disagreed, but Ryan has such a powerful diplomatic and level-headed approach to communication that I was immediately disarmed. And the reality is, is that we found agreement on many things that we talked about. An awesome conversation with a powerful leader in Fresno. Please enjoy my conversation with Ryan Jacobson. Music, show some respect to the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. Uh, so, Ryan, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Uh, there are so many fantastic places. Um, I mean, I, I like local. I mean, so whether it's Elbow Room uh, to Butterfish to you name it, I'm up for trying just about anything locally. Yeah, I um, the the Butterfish thing is interesting. It was you know it's kind of this trend that came came out, and I I'm wondering if it has staying power because you know it's it's something that like I have to be in the right mood for. Uh, is it like a is it like a common lunch thing for you? It's uh, I'm up for it anytime kind of kind of uh, uh, kind of lunch or dinner. I mean, I, I love it. It's just the uh, I don't know. It's kind of the lightness of it. It's not heavy. You don't necessarily as long as you um, don't get too many toppings on there. But uh, I, for me, it's one of those things that makes it it's one of those things you uh, you feel OK after you eat it. And uh, you can go out and whether it's, you know, whatever else you have to do the rest of the day, you still feel great doing it. You know, I, I think there is a thing that people have figured out, um, and I say this because the Butterfish people also opened this restaurant called Made, uh, yeah. which is kind of their flip on Chipotle meets Mediterranean food, I guess you'd call it. Um, but there's just something about being able to just that that uh, that container with that baseline of rice and then just adding what, so it's almost like you can do it with any kind of food. Um, and it's just, it's it's understandable to people. They can process it. And it, you know what to expect and it feels balanced and not like you said, like, not like if you go and have, no offense to anybody, listen, no, if you have Westwoods for lunch, your afternoon is game over, right? <laughs> Absolutely. There are times that that sounds extraordinarily appropriate. It yes. just, uh, I, I'll tell you what, man, most, I just like the ability to, I mean, what I have one day, I'm not going to have the next day. You can switch it up and you can make it so you know, as flavorful as you want a certain day and as bland as you want it the next day. I think that's the, there's a lot to be said about the consumer liking that option. For sure. Um, before we get into some of the questions about the Bureau, um, on food, does, do you consume food differently? Um, 
in Fresno and just in general, given your kind of relationship with ag, is there something about how you look at food that changes when you work in the ag world? Is there, you know, I mean, I don't know if you're constantly seeking what's seasonal or constantly seeking uh, what you know is local or uh, how, how does that affect how you, how you consume food? Well, I'll start with the basics. I love supporting local restaurants. That's just more of a personal caveat that I just like to, uh, I like the the ability to, you know, because I'm, I'm hoping folks are doing the same to us in the agriculture industry. They're looking for that California grown label or the ability to know that it was um, grown within within the, within the confines or near the state of California somewhere. Um, but uh, the way I look at food is, I mean, like, like so many folks out there just trying to eat more healthy. I mean, trying to uh, have that opportunity to, um, you know, have the freshest and best available and um, not necessarily, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to think I necessarily go out there and, and try to look what exactly is seasonal, but I think it's just really trying to take, a, you know, to try to take advantage of the diversity of food that we have here locally and um, uh, just, just enjoy it, mix it up a little bit. I like, I, I like, I'm not one of those that goes to the same spot every single time. I love trying something different, you know, uh, every time I go out. Yeah, I think the local thing is underrated. I think sometimes people kind of lump that in with just like um, they think of uh, hippies with dreadlocks in San Francisco walking around farmers markets. And there is that to a local uh, eating locally, but there's also just purely a flavor thing, right? I mean, if you're if you're eating something that's not local, that's say, you know, shipped from somewhere deep in Mexico, you know, it had to be packaged, preserved, put in boxes and, you know, it it maybe isn't going to taste as fresh. It maybe isn't going to taste as flavorful as if something that's picked down the road from you. Yeah, no, without a doubt. Um, and, you know, that's the one thing that I think we all know about the amazingness of the San Joaquin Valley it is truly the diverse melting pot of so many different cultures that have come here and brought with them these uh, tastes that are, you know, phenomenal that we have here that, you know, we joke about, you know, there's not Mexican food like we have really throughout the rest of the U.S. I mean, we're we're proud of our tacos affiliation when it comes to the Fresno Grizzlies and everything else. And um, but there's so much even more beyond that. And so, uh, yeah you gotta you gotta take advantage of it i mean there's just a um i mean to me i and i'm not just fyi i'm not a spicy person i don't like real spicy foods i'm i'm more of like i just like the uh like letting the food taste you know really bring out its own flavor type of deal but uh with that said there are so many options within fresno that uh, even i still got so many more that i need to check off my list here um most of us have been locked up for you know a good portion of the last year or not been able to go sit in these restaurants and enjoy them. Um, so I think there's a lot of us out there that have this uh, wish list of places we want to make sure we head out and hit and most importantly support them through this very difficult time. Absolutely. Um, before we get into kind of some of the topical questions I wanted to talk about, can you just explain for a minute what the Farm Bureau is and how you um, how your journey uh, to uh, directing it. And I, cause I think when people see the farm bureau, they, they think bureau, maybe federal bureau of investment, no, maybe some kind of bank. And so they, their kind of minds maybe wander a little bit around and they can't really quite land on uh, what it is you guys are and you do. No, fantastic question. Get that all the time. I think a lot of, 
a lot of our residents are familiar with the name, but not necessarily have any clue what we do. So the Fresno County Farm Bureau is a nonprofit, non-governmental entity that is essentially around to be a voice for agriculture, a voice for those farmers and ranchers that we have in this area. Uh, so my organization here um, has been around for 104 years, started back in 1917. Uh, the Farm Bureau organization nationwide, there's, I think, started as, uh, as far back as 110 years ago. But we essentially were set up as a point of dissemination for the uh, uh, University of California Cooperative Extensions for them to be able to get their research out and be able to be the communicative tool with farmers and ranchers back then. Obviously, that role has changed over time. Uh, today, uh, we are to be, uh, most importantly, we're kind of that, uh, when I talk about the voice of agriculture, we're uh, the voice both upwards and downwards. Um, upwards being working on the regulatory legislative side, making sure that you know our farmers and ranchers are being heard when it comes to the politics and regulations that affect their day-to-day -day life. Um, we're also there to be the communica uh, communicative tool to um, our farmers and ranchers out on the ground level. Like this is what they need to do to stay in compliance on whatever that issue might be. This is what's going on within the industry. Really try to be that heartbeat so that they have a clue uh, as far as all the things that are going out there that may affect their day-to-day -day livelihood. Uh, so uh, it's uh, it's been an incredible journey for myself. Uh, in June of uh, 2021, I celebrate 17 years here at Fresno County Farm Bureau. Uh, I am the uh, fourth generation involved in this organization. Started with my great-grandmother way back when. My grandfather was uh, president in the mid-80s. My mother was the uh, first woman president of the organization back in the early 2000s. And I've been very fortunate to be able to uh, carry my journey here and be able to uh, really merge my love of uh, politics and agriculture in a very uh, creative way here at Farm Bureau. That's great. So let's get right into politics. So um, I, I'm a history teacher and we one of the things that we talk about when we talk about U.S. history is the Bracera program. And it was created obviously during World War II uh, to bring in laborers as uh, you know American men went to f and, and, and women in support uh, went to fight in World War II. Um, and it was a for the most part, a somewhat successful program, highly successful according to some people. Um, and things changed, the Bracero program ended, and we now have a kind of visa called the H-2A, which uh, the purpose behind it is to bring, bring in workers, uh, I think primarily farm workers. Can you speak a little bit about what the H-2A program is, and do you think um, it needs to be modified to encourage more, uh, more farm workers to come in more easily? Is there too much, speaking of regulation, is there too much red tape involved uh, with, uh, you know, farmers using some of the benefits of the program or the way it was uh, idealized? Yeah, no, uh, fantastic question. So, you know, labor here in the San Joaquin Valley is an extraordinarily important issue for us because so many of our crops are labor intensive. Um, you mentioned the Bracera program. There were challenges and successes with that particular program. And, um, you know, for a lot of years, there was uh, there was not necessarily a program in place with the H2A uh, brought into existence. Uh, it's not something that's ever overly worked well for California agriculture. It is extraordinarily challenging as far as the timelines that are contained within it. It's extraordinarily challenging within the, uh, uh, the, the regulatory side of what you have to do to actually bring an employee over here. And therefore, up until recently, very, very, very small percentage of individuals participated in California. It does work better off for some of the other crops throughout the U.S., but for California perishable crops, where the timeline of the beginning of harvest, the uh, um, as far as what needs to be met, those can change substantially from year to year, and therefore um, doesn't necessarily meet our, our constraints or requirements for that. Um, 
but today we've had more farmers take advantage of it simply because there is such a huge lack of labor. Um, there are more folks trying to figure out how to make it take advantage of it. There have been some administrative fixes to the program that have allowed it to slightly work better. But long term, we do want to see reform of that system. Um, we do believe it's a system that could operate or could work for us. Um, we are 100% behind trying to come up with a legal way to bring individuals into this country to work and then have that ability to go back home when that time does allow. Uh, and something that works for industries such as our dairy side of things, um, whether it's sheep herders, other folks that have more permanent long-term positions available. Uh, those are all aspects that are externally that we're looking at as we try to repair this program through Congress and come up with some long-term fixes. Uh, you know, it's, the, the stats are pretty staggering. When you talk about in California agriculture, over 90% of our workforce is foreign born. Um, it doesn't necessarily reflect immigration status. It just says that they were born in the country other than the US. Um, it is something that agricultural work is typically something first generation does, and then they move on to other segments of the economy when it comes to their kids and grandkids, um, because that's part of the American dream. Uh, but for us in the ag industry to find that reliable supply um, of labor that we need so sorely to be able to produce the fresh fruits and vegetables that we do here, um, we need to come up with a system that definitely works there. And so H2A is a part of that. Doing something with the individuals that are already here is also a very important part of that. Um, but those are comprehensive solutions that we're trying to work with Congress and the president to uh, hopefully resolve for us uh, long term. It is worth noting 1986 was the last time we dealt with immigration reform on any kind of big uh, wide scale here in the US. And so we're talking 35 years later, we're still trying to find some fixes because it is such a controversial issue when it comes back to uh, Washington, DC. Right. And it seems like something what you're describing about different crops requiring different kinds of labor, or at least different time periods that labor needs to be here. It seems like it should be something that's managed at a state level or even a county level or some, or some capacity where you could have some flexibility. Um, and, but, you know, it's it, immigration issues are all under the auspices of the national government and the federal government. That's its role. And I, I interact with this because I teach citizenship classes uh, to people uh, trying to naturalize. And, you know, a lot of the changes come top down. And, and so we don't often understand what's happening until it's happened. And it's, uh, you know, it doesn't fit with everybody's needs. And, but I, I, I don't know, I don't know what the, what the solution there is. Cause like you said, there's this kind of gridlock around these issues. And it seems like it would, we would really benefit from, uh, being have, having more local control, but that just doesn't seem possible. Is there some kind of way forward where there can be more local control? Uh, great analysis because you're exactly right. Um, so much you hear the state try to dabble in immigration issues and it's a federal issue. Um, but there has to, I mean, in our opinion, there would be some recognition to the flexibility needed within the regionalness of agriculture. I mean, here for the San Joaquin Valley, we're so distinctive, even within California as a whole, because of the way our seasons operate there. And so um, there is a way to make that happen. And I think that's what we're hopeful for when it comes to the uh, long-term strategy of fixing H2A. That's a big part of it. So if most of the regulation on top was taken off, uh, it, I, I, I think I hear the other side in my ear saying something like, if you, if you just kind of let anything go, uh, then that's where you get kind of corruption, you get, uh, you know, people taking advantage of the system. And so I, I, you know, maybe that's one of the obstacles to overcome is people's knee jerk reaction to loosening any kind of rules around immigration, um, where they see that as a potential uh, situation where you could have a free rider problem or you could have a problem where people are taking advantage of a system. 
Yeah, no, that's uh, and that's definitely not the case in this. I can assure there would be still plenty of rules into existence. Um, I think the key word is what we mentioned earlier, flexibility. It's not necessarily that we're looking for the lessening of rules, but understanding that timeframes and timelines that are in existence um, are not necessarily conducive to California agriculture. Therefore, we need something that has more flexibility that allows the uh, more timeliness of this acceleration of the program versus, you know, I don't know when my peaches, plums, nectarines, and table grapes are ready to be harvested in January, but that's when you need to start the process um, for a lot of this to happen there. And I don't know when that season's going to end. In because so much is determined upon what mother nature provides us as well as the markets and so um so with all that said there yeah flexibility is the key to this and trying to understand the importance of how that all comes together well we just need to encourage mother nature to check the timetables so yeah. um at, and that kind of a corollary to this question um you know a lot of things are uh, rising in cost including labor um and i know that there is a um Kind of a mechanization that's been happening over a long time uh, in agriculture and I've seen a lot of cool stuff with like drones and you know mapping using heat uh, a lot of interesting things um, do you think farmers are going to start looking for technology to fill the gap as some of the labor costs rise do you see that as a projected outcome for the future not projected it's happening um, it's happening at a wide scale. I mean, we're seeing investments like you could never have imagined uh, 10 years ago. Uh, you know, it started, I mean, a lot of our technology, you know, has evolved over time just as savings of some kind within the industry here. But there is an absolute emphasis right now to try to cut labor costs where possible because for so many California industries, they will not survive within the segments of agriculture, will not survive if it's not, uh, if we don't find those solutions. I mean, what's happening over, for example, in Salinas with the automation of uh, uh, weeding um, within those uh, types of lettuce fields is absolutely stunning how um, uh, how incredible this technology is and the, and the robots that are out there doing it. Um, but even over here, we're seeing um, a great emphasis on trying to um, expedite um, harvests where possible, um, trying to um, make it as simple uh, as possible for the employee to try. The more simple you make it for it, the less movement you have for it, the potential that they're, you know, productive activity can increase. Um, we're also trying to make sure that, uh, you know, I don't think it's too far away that we're going to see robots actually physically picking things we never thought possible just a few years ago. Um, so there is some true investments, not just from Central Valley agriculture, but we're talking Silicon Valley to, you know, international um, major companies are looking at what are issues that they could potentially help us solve. And you're seeing some investments in those areas pretty significantly. Yeah, and I know people have fears when you start talking about mechanizing jobs, you know, if you imagine a robot picking grapes or something like, you know, the, the kind of <laughs> the, uh, the corollary to that is, well, there, there go the jobs. And, you know, given that Fresno County is an ag dependent, uh, you know, that's a, the biggest or one of the biggest sectors of our economy. Um, how, how do you think about that relationship between mechanization and job loss? Or do you think it's going to create so, new kinds of jobs? New kinds of jobs with all kinds of opportunities. Um, no, I mean, we are, you know, we're, we're consist consistently on the, you know, edge of not having enough labor. So there's not, I mean, there's no issue in regards to going in the future. We're just going to have different types of jobs. And there's still going to be areas that, you know, there's no way in the next two decades that we're able to automate. Um, so when you look at something, you take water technology. I mean, I think, you know, Jordan, that we're, you know, when you talk the Western side of Fresno County, it is the water tech capital of the, 
the world, not the nation, the world. I mean, there is truly nobody out there out there doing it better than what those farmers are doing out there. And look at all the jobs that's created, all the opportunities that it's created, uh, as well as being able to save our precious water resources. And so over the next course of, you know, the next decades, I see those opportunities increasing for ag. And that's why you look at enrollment at Fresno State, Cal Poly. I mean, they're all looking at, you know, record or near record types of employment that really do make a huge difference. That's great to hear. Um, let's talk a little bit because underlying that last answer to that last question about mechanization, there is this kind of um, question about barriers to entry. So let's say I'm a young guy and I'm one, you know, I, I, you know, my dream is to be a farmer and I want to own, own my own spot. You know, I, I don't know what I'm going to grow necessarily, but I want to get started. Um, do, do you imagine a future for someone like me that's starting out that maybe doesn't have family that owns the land, maybe doesn't have a ton of capital behind me. Um, is, there, is there a way into uh, kind of this utopian Jeffersonian dream of, you know, having a farm or something? Or do you, I mean, because a lot of the things that you're talking about mechanization, they sound like a lot, they sound capital intensive is what they sound like to me. And it sounds like, um, you know, there maybe is a future where there's uh, fewer and fewer companies, which, you know, begs the question, um, can can an uh, you know an entrepreneurial young person that wants to be a farmer is there is there a future for that person? Uh, yeah, so uh, there's opportunity for everybody. And you talked about barrier to entry. I mean, your first barrier to entry is just the land cost itself. Right. And whether and I should say land, obviously there's a lot more going on, whether it's uh, aquaponics or other things there. But no matter what, just your initial outlay is extraordinarily expensive. So will you be able to go start farming a hundred acres tomorrow? Um, you know, no, absolutely. You're going to have to look to go more the non-traditional route of trying to figure out how can I do it small scale and make up the monetary side of over on farmers markets? How can I um, figure out a way to go direct to consumer? Um, how can I figure out how to make this an agritourism type of operation to allow that? Because uh, uh, the traditional way of getting 20 acres and being able to, you know, over time grow that operation, those days are gone. Um, because it's so expensive to start out and begin that farming and your margins are so thin. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure Jordan that if I was to come to you and offer you 1% in the stock market over the long term, you look at me like I'm an absolute joke. Why would you offer me 1% return over the long term? I mean, I can make more money somewhere else. Well, that's what you're looking at in agriculture is about a 1% long term um, average rate of return um, on assets that are just, like I said, very, very high for a very low rate of return compared in comparison to that. So, um, so we're definitely, that's what's unique about uh, Central Valley, California agriculture is we have diversity. We have opportunities that you don't have in other places. If you go to the Midwest, your cropping pattern is going to you know, rotate possibly between three to four different crops. And that's about all you have the option to do. Here in California, on a small plot of land, you could potentially grow you know, dozens of different crops. In fact, I always am in amazement when you go out to a Southeast Asian farm. You know, I've been to places where they got 75 different crops on 20 acres, which just boggles my mind. It's absolutely amazing. But they're able to find that direct consumer demand uh, within the farmer's market side of things and be very successful within it. Um, so you got to find what that niche is and really try to find in how you're going to exploit that niche and take advantage of it so that you're able to make a livelihood off of it. So you just got to lean into your strengths, right? If you're, if you're small, you can lean into flexibility and diversity. If you're big, you're going to lean into efficiency and scale, right? Um, yeah. And I think part of it too is it sounds like a little bit, 
you, people just have to reframe how they're looking at getting involved in agriculture. You know, before it might just be, you get a plot of land, you start farming it, but now you might get involved. You might be an irrigation specialist, or you might be some kind of AI, I don't know, something, some other uh, yeah. job related to technology. And so maybe, you know, we're, you're coming in at a, in a different place along the scale and there's not just one person at the top and then, uh, you know, the farm helpers. No, you're absolutely right. There's a there's a ton of you know variability within that. I mean, that's what we tell young people all the time. I mean, the, the day of just being the farmer out on the farm. I mean, uh, that's the very small part of this industry. It's really the upstream, downstream, and all those other opportunities to be an asset there. And um, and that's what's amazing. You talk about opportunities. I mean, with the invention of social media, I mean, you can turn a small farm into a profitable enterprise. Uh, it's it's going to take some incredible sweat equity and the ability to get out there and really try to not only match your farming skills with your ability to uh, resonate with folks and get them what they need or want. But uh, with the uh, with the pandemic showed us one thing: people care a little bit more now where their food's coming from. They're looking for experiences. Uh, they're looking for the ability to roll up their sleeves and feel like they're they're a part of you know what's uh, of what farmers do on a day to day basis. And so there is a lot to be said about the the opportunities there. Um, one thing that amazes me on an, on, on an almost annual basis, when you look at the most um, reputable sources of uh, reputable occupations, uh, I mean, you typically in your top three, it just rotates from year to year between the top three, but your top three are police, firefighters, and farmers. Um, because people have this, you know, I think it's the, their agrarian roots here in America and how, you know, this country was built upon the backs of those that came before us. And most of them were in the farming ranching industry. And I think there's still that appreciation for the hard work and what it takes to bring that crop to the table there. And so it's up to us within the agriculture community to really be able to look at how we can feed that, how we can strengthen that relationship with our consumer and, uh, really make this a, uh, make it a better a uh, better experience for for our consumers and feel like they have have an opportunity to be a part of something bigger. Let's talk a little bit about political um, the processes uh, in your organization. Um, you know, there's if you're representing Fresno County, you're representing a diversity of farmers and farming communities, um, and something that might be good for one farmer might not be the best for another. Um, but ultimately. Uh, how do you, or how does your organization uh, back certain legislation, back uh, certain political candidates? Is there a process for that? And how do you, how do you make sure you're big tent enough to include the whole agricultural community in there? Uh, you know, oftentimes I'm sure their needs are complementary, but occasionally they can be contrasting. Yeah, uh, fantastic question. So Fresno County, over 350 different crops and commodities just in my county alone. Uh, 99 point, probably 9% of what we work on is either um, great for every, uh, great or good for everybody um, in the same direction or bad for everybody in the same direction or it affects one particular segment but doesn't you know, affect the other ones by any means. Um, you do run into rare circumstances where once something might be good for one and bad for another, and those are areas where we obviously got to figure out and bring those folks together to try to figure out what that right um, you know, middle ground is. But for so much of it, it just really revolves around um, the communication. We're here to foster that communication between, uh, you know, we're talking a huge community, the agricultural community is, it gets pigeonholed into this, you know, you know, big, you know, 
blob over here, but within it, there's so many different silos that um, you can you can break it down into. Um, a raisin farmer may have no clue what a dairyman goes through on a on a day to day basis, and um, one of our farmers over in you know that's doing vegetable crops has no clue what an almond farmer's doing. Um, you know, we do have a lot of farmers that are diverse, but a lot of farmers grow one or two crops, and so they don't really get outside of that there. And so um, for us, it's just uh, you know that's why we have a very diverse board uh, board of directors that helps to bring those different opinions together and work on those types of issues. Um, and we're able to, in almost most cases, successfully resolve it. Now, when it comes to the, the political candidate side of things, um, you know, I love, I, I, I'm very upfront instilling this from Pat Hill. Um, used to love Coach Pat Hill's, you know, anytime, anywhere, any place. Um, uh, that's my same philosophy when it comes to candidates. And we don't, we don't, we don't make endorsements here at the uh, Fresno County Farm Bureau level. Um, we work with anybody, anybody that's willing to have a conversation with us, talk to us. Um, um, no matter what their party affiliation is, no matter what you know their particular um, background might be, we're open to that. We love that. Um, you know, I, I have lots of great conversations, whether it's city council, board of supervisors, to state elected, to congressional elected folks um, across the political spectrum. We're here to be a resource. We want to uh, make sure that they understand our issues, make sure they understand why we're coming from certain areas. Um, you know, we don't want to be an organization of just no. We want to be able to explain why and how we can maybe get to the same end result via a different pathway. Uh, I think so much of the time we get, um, you know, just in society, we get into um, a jam because, you know, people only see black and white. It can only be done one way. Um, a lot of times there's multiple ways to get from point A to point B. We just got to figure out what makes the most logical sense and economic sense. Um, you know, I, I tell folks all the time that it's important to remember when it comes to agriculture, when, you, when, it talks, when we talk about the growing of crops, I mean, um, you know, uh, uh, growing without a profit or agriculture without a profit is gardening. Um, and we first and foremost are in business. We have to be able to stay in business to be able to make it to the next year. We just talk about how capital intensive it is. It takes it takes a return for us to be able to do what we do. You don't make a return every year. Obviously, you got the ups and downs and everything else you got to deal with. And we got our partners that finance us and get us from where we are going. But um, we got to be able to make a profit. And, and that's becoming more difficult in the state for a lot of crops. Um, it's just it's a very it's a very expensive state to farm in. Um, obviously, we're number one by far, but we we have to be able to be able to be functional as a business. Um, and so we got we have to be able to um, number one partner with our other business organizations. Maybe they're not directly agriculture, but they're you know they have the same issues and the same problems that we have, and be able to effectively communicate that to our statewide and congressional leaders so that they have a better understanding of what we're going through. Um. Given what you just mentioned uh, right now about uh, how it's becoming more difficult to be profitable, one thing that uh, you know ag futurists and people that are thinking about long-term, uh, you know, returns on on uh, ag products, they're thinking about climate change, and they're thinking about the way uh, climate change could potentially impact crop insurance. Um, I mean, if you have a more uh, uh, what's the word? Volatile system. Volatile yeah. system, you know, where there's, you know, it's capricious and like, you know, you might have, you know, a really severe multiple down years, um, you know, potentially in our future. Uh, how do you think that will change crop insurance? And how do you think that will uh, maybe uh, cause farmers to hedge their bets more, you know, be safer? Uh, do you think that will negatively impact uh, the ag industry? So here in the San Joaquin Valley, that's an interesting conversation. I don't know how much 
that will affect us. We just don't know to the crop insurance sites how much that will affect us. When you talk climate change, by far, like hands down, the biggest issue we're dealing with here locally is water. Yeah. Um, and simply because we have a water uh, uh, infrastructure and program that's been set up dependent upon the Sierra Nevada snowpack. And there is the belief that most, most folks agree that we won't see less precipitation up in the Sierra Nevada. We're just gonna see more of it coming in the form of rainfall versus snowpack. And our system isn't set up for that. And so when you talk about volatility, that's the biggest volatility we're dealing with is going to be cut back some water and everything else. And that's a part of that overall crop insurance um, question there. So uh, it's, it's one of those issues I can assure you at the forefront of our minds, as far as uh, um, the, in particularly the water side, like how are we going to adjust, how are we going to prepare? Uh, uh, you know, we're going to, I'm sure we're going to talk more about water, but water being the lifeblood of allowing us to do what we do here and knowing that it's going to be much more of a difficult source going forward. Um, it becomes, it's, it's by far, one it's the driving force as far as what our industry is going to look like 10 20 years from now yeah let's go ahead and talk about water right now since we're on it um on that note do you are are you know it, do you see one of the solutions or the way forward as you know there's different movements in california to either uh take down dams or build more dams uh do you think uh you know more dams is 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 the is the ag industry's way of uh one of the ways of uh, looking at this problem yeah, so I, I st always start with the caveat, there's no silver bullet, because if there was a silver bullet, we would have had this thing uh, solved years ago. Um, the infrastructure we have here in California is truly the envy of the world. I mean, we're back in the late late 40s, early 50s is when we really started to build most of these projects and it went through the early 70s. We haven't done a lot since then. I mean, we, we've invested you know, on smaller projects, but we haven't done the grand um, uh, investments that we did back during that 20, 30 year period. Uh, and that is something that we are now paying for today. I mean, the, those systems were built for a population of 20 million people for an ag industry that was smaller than what we see today. And they were pretty much built with very little environmental concerns taken to, in, into consideration. And so you've had this whole system change and yet we haven't changed our infrastructure. So when I say there's no silver bullet, do I want, do I think there's a need for additional above ground storage? Absolutely. Like hands down, there is a need for us to be able to store this, particularly with the climate change debate. When you talk about climate change and we talk about less snowpack, the largest reservoir we have in the state of California is the Sierra Nevada snowpack. And if we don't have that frozen snowpack, and we need to be able to save it as in when it comes in a water form, then we are in trouble because we don't have nearly enough buckets or dams, reservoirs to be able to save that water when it's available there. So massively critical for us to be able to do a much better job of investing in infrastructure, not just above ground storage. We need a below ground storage. We need um, conveyance, which is, you know, ditches, canals, um, large aqueducts to be able to move water where it's available to where it's needed and be able to take it in. I mean, a lot of this is just um, uh, it, this conveyance is just capacity issues. We, we, we live in this false belief of average. Like we want to, we, we're, we're going to have an average year. There's no such thing as average anymore. It either comes in high volumes, it typically comes in high volumes or comes in almost no volumes. And there's a lot of those years where it's just not even close to average. We need to try to flatten that curve there and try to figure out a way to get it when it's available, sink it in the ground, hold it above ground, um, and then try to make it weather it through these more tougher times like the years like we're going through right now. So um, I am, I'm, I'm very much, um, 
uh, uh, bolstered by the fact that the governor invested or has proposed right now $5.1 billion for water investment, but that's a starting point. That is not the ending point. We need to do a lot of $5.1 billion over the course of the next several decades to be able to get us where we've kind of deferred for the last 50 years. Do you think part of the problem with investing in this kind of infrastructure is the fact that a lot of our population is concentrated in non-agricultural areas? I mean, you've got San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, these kind of uh, places where they're apart from the valley, you know, apart from agriculture. And so they don't see it as, a, as, as, a, you know, as an important interest. Or is it just that there is uh, so many layers of regulation, red tape, different interest groups, you know, competing with each other in this kind of like winner take all political environment that like it's just hard to get anything done? All of the above. Uh, we do live in such a polarized political environment that, I mean, unfortunately, I, I'm here to say I, I really do believe there can be win-win for the environment and agriculture and the urban areas if we were to make these investments. And that's why, you know, that's why I do what I do is because I do get excited about that. But the hyper-polarization of any type of um, uh, project or type of expenditure in the state is, is, is really just so detrimental to our long-term success as a group. I mean, um, we do know, I mean, when it comes to votes, I mean, the San Joaquin Valley only represents approximately 10% of the state's population. I mean, so you're talking one out of 10 votes in the San Joaquin Valley, the urban centers really do help decide or dictate, and they are very much removed from what we have to live with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, on a year like this year, they open up the tap, they're going to get water. I mean, um, even in the driest years that they may have had to cut some water off to their lawns, but they're still going to get water at their taps. That's not the case for people here in the San Joaquin Valley. That's not been the case. And so these investments, you know, we are, when it comes to water infrastructure, we are disproportionately affected comparative to other parts of the state there. Um, but there's this misnomer of this, and, and I just want to correct it. I, I get so frustrated that folks think we're water wasters within the agricultural community. The fact is, is that ultimately, I mean, farmers are the borrowers of water. It's the consumer, the eater, the person that's enjoying our products are the ultimate beneficiary of these investments. Um, the fact is, is no matter what you eat on a daily basis, it took some form of water to produce that food. And some of it's pretty amazing how much water it takes. Every single human though on this, on this planet, every day consumes on average 800 gallons of water through the food they eat. And so we always talk about the water needed to take a shower, to clean, you know, wash your car, to that goes towards landscaping, those green grasses, but so much of it falls upon the food we eat on a daily basis, one of the highest water consumers that we, uh, that we utilize. And we need to be proud of the fact that we use it the most efficiently here in California and that we can figure out solutions that still work for the environment because whatever we do here in California is going to be done so much more environmentally responsible than just about anywhere else you're going to import food from. And so that needs to be part of this. When you look at carbon footprints and the ability to do what we do here, um, California agriculture does it pretty amazingly. Yeah, you know, it's abstraction, I think, is hard for people. You know, they can, they can feel the water droplets going over their body while they're taking a shower. But to look at a hamburger and say this equals that, that's a little harder. And I, I remember this. Um, I was living in Southern California when they uh, passed the uh, no, no plastic bags yep. uh, rule. And, um, you know, I, for the most part, I, I like the idea, you know, just from a trash perspective. But, you know, when you actually look at how much it costs to or like the 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 resources needed to produce one reusable bag 
versus one uh, skinny, thin plastic bag that you would use to carry your eggs home in, you know, you'd have to use a gazillion of those plastic, little tiny plastic bags to equal one of the reusable bags. But that is a level of abstraction that I don't think people on a daily basis can do that equation. You know, they can't do that kind of calculus in their heads because, you know, if you do that kind of calculus, every decision you make, is gonna, you're like yeah. an economist sitting in a room going like, should I do this or that? And that's not what we're asking. But I think uh, humility is probably part, part what, you know, at least if you're driving, you know, your electric car and, you know, thinking that you're removed from some of these things, it's not true. It's not true. Yeah. I mean, the infrastructure that's there, you know, was produced with certain things. So I, I, I personally, I get skeptical of people that, um, you know, get on this high horse about, you know, I'm only using X number of water droplets to, you know, water my uh, drought tolerant front yard while eating, you know, steaks for dinner. You know what I mean? It's just, it's a confusing thing, but it's, it's challenging. And so I don't want to, I don't want to say it's not. Um, I do. Well, and that's where it goes back to Jordan, the hyper polarization of where we are. It's like, why can't we just meet in the middle <laughs> for so many of these issues? It's just like um, the fact that um, you can't even have conversations about a lot of these issues is what's so frustrating in today's environment. And so for, for us, I mean, that's why, like I said, I mentioned earlier, I mean, I'm willing to talk with anybody on agriculture. I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, it was about how much water it takes to grow a single almond. I mean, well, there's, there's another discussion that needs to take place in that bigger, broader types of discussion there. And so um, there's just a lot of context that I think is purposely missed in today's environment that uh, we, we, we need to do a better job. And that's why, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here to, to be a voice for that, uh, for our incredible agricultural community is simply because um, if we don't give that voice, somebody else is willing to provide a voice, but it may not be the right message. It may not yeah. be the right truth. And so yeah. that's, uh, that's one of those things that I think, uh, I'm appreciative of people like you being able to have these kind of more in-depth conversations because so much of everything gets boiled down to 60 to 90 seconds a day. And we know these issues are a lot more complex than 60 to 90 seconds. For sure. And I, I do want to dip back in for a minute about uh, ag innovation, because I do think this is one area where you could get some disparate uh, political groups within our state that's highly polarized together, which is, you know, making things more efficient, making things use less water, having, you know, <laughs> a system where you can, you know, make food more affordable for people. Um, can you share a, a couple or one or two or, or more of the innovations you're most excited about that you see uh, going on in farming? So some of them aren't necessarily the one that are going to make headlines. Um, the thing that doesn't get talked about a lot is the amazingness of the varietals coming out. You name it, but across the board, the number of varietals coming out. Because the challenge to some of these water issues is going to be solved via not necessarily the next widget that's going to be able to, you know, take a drop of water and deliver to the root zone. I mean, there's a lot of those widgets already, but it's the new varietal of tomato plant that takes less water to do the same thing. Um, so plant breeding and all that kind of stuff is crazy. Um, I get excited when you talk about um, table grapes. Look at all these new tastes that we've had come out in the last couple of years. Um, you know, I know there's, a, you know, when you talk about the, the novelty of it, you know, the cotton candy grape. Um, not sure if you've had that or not, but it's, it's a novelty item. But beyond that, I mean, and it's very cool novelty item, but there's a lot of other types of flavors that have come out that have really just exploded, you know, the opportunities. It was only 10 years ago, none of us really knew what a seedless Mandarin was. Um, and yet now that's, I mean, uh, 
that's what everybody wants. <laughs> and so there's a lot of it is just the ability for us to uh, continue to uh, breed plants that are, you know, still nutritious and wholesome, but allows us to get fruits and vegetables in a, in, in a different way than what we've been, do, been doing before. Um, you take, I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, we're in a, we're in a consumer environment where we all know that convenience is almost priority number one for most families these days. Um, they may not take a whole apple and eat it, but if you put a sliced apples in a bag, um, all of a sudden it's been a game changer that they can throw to the kid and the kids has that ability to, you know, consume the product, the healthy product that they want there. And so for me, it's, it's the simplistic things that are taking place that are really, really cool. Um, but I mentioned innovation wise. I mean, I still see robots autonomously going through a lettuce field, um, zapping or pulling, um, weeds and leaving the plants alone or thinning through, I mean, is, is truly crazy. I mean, there's no other way to explain it. The, the, the fact that what they're doing is truly amazing. When you see, you know, we don't have a lot of them here yet, but when you see GPS tractors um, um, uh, drive, driving autonomously or just GPS in general, the accuracy as far as what these seeds and plants are going in, I mean, those are things that are pretty remarkable. Um, go into some of these, um, I, I love to go into packing plants today. The fact that we have sensors that can do, you know, dozens or hundreds of pieces of fruit, they can look inside those pieces of fruits, dozens and uh, hundreds per a second, and be able to see that they're, you know, number one, high quality fruit, there's no seeds, making sure that they don't find any rot. I mean, this is all stuff that able to size them. I mean, these things are amazing. Um, and it's all taking place kind of behind, you know, you don't think about it on a day-to-day -day basis, but the reason that you're able to have, you know, California, I'm sorry, America still has the most affordable food supply in the world. The reason we're able to do that, a lot of it is just simply because of the technological advances that we've had, because by being able to, you know, lower the labor on the packing side, the farm side, everything else, we're able to get it more cost effectively. That's not to say, I think you and I both recognize it costs more money to eat healthy. And right. that's, that's, a, that's a discussion that this nation needs to have because here we are talking about water issues and what the future of the valley may look like. 20 years, I'm, I'm sorry, 10 years from now, and definitely 20 years, the face of valley agriculture will not look the same simply because of lack of water. And yet when you talk about the obesity, diabetes, and other long-term challenges that, were, uh, that are affecting our citizenry throughout this country, the Central Valley of California is the answer to that. It's the fresh fruit and vegetables we're growing here. By the way, California grows two thirds of the nation's fruits and one third of the nation's vegetables. We're growing them right here. That's the answer to so many of these issues. We need to find a way to get people to consume more. It is cheaper to eat unhealthy versus healthy. That needs to be flipped on its head. And we are, we here in the San Joaquin Valley need to continue to play that role, but we need to figure out long-term solutions to our industry. Yeah, I mean, one innovation I'm waiting for someone to come up with uh, is how to grow an avocado without a pit. Just think if that all that all that wasted space by that pit. I will take any genetically modified thing they throw at me. If it doesn't have a pit and I can get more avocado per square inch, I'm a happy person. Um, it, may, it may not be that far away, Jordan. It may not be that far away. That's the amazing I hope part. so. <laughs> I'm gonna. Uh, hopefully, I'll get to find out what's inside those UFOs, and I'll get to get rid of that pit <laughs> in the next year or two. So um, let's. 
I, we're, we're not going to end on a negative thing, but let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what, what one of my problems was when I moved back to the Valley, which is allergies, um, which is related to externalities, right? Um, so every industry has externalities. Externalities just means uh, some consequence of whatever you do uh, can potentially affect other people. Um, and there are, there are a few big markers of externalities with big ag in, in Fresno. I, the one that obviously I think about a lot is, um, that I need to take an allergy pill and do a nasal spray every day. Um, and that's, you know, it's a small price to pay, uh, to live, uh, to live here, but you know, there are others too. So how, how do, how do farmers think about externalities and are there incentives to make, uh, farming, uh, be, you know, to, you know, you see how sprawl is happening in, uh, in Fresno and Clovis and in Madera and the surrounding places. Uh, how can, how can we ensure that we have a healthy environment for both ag, but also, you know, housing and people living there in residential communities? Great question. First off, I'll address the allergy one. This is, um, you talked about, I think, I forget what we referenced earlier, but the fact that you see something versus not seeing it. I think right. we were talking about the water up in the, in the urban centers. Um, yeah. That's the exact same thing when it comes to allergies. Agriculture gets a, a majority of the blame because, you know, those trees are blooming right now, but nobody takes into account almost all of those allergies are being caused by the incredible diversity of trees and shrubs that we have within the urban centers. Uh, agriculture is the more vocal uh, focal point because we're so big and obviously surround the whole areas, but most of our plants aren't the ones that are causing most people to sneeze come the uh, 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 spring and summer months. It's because this incredible weather that allows us to do agriculturally speaking, what you can't find most other places. It also allows us to have incredible shrubbery in our front yards that you don't find anywhere else. And so it's the great diversity of all those ornamental plants that we've imported to the San Joaquin Valley that in most cases is most likely what's causing you to sneeze during those uh, spring and summer months. Um, but there are issues. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the first to say we know that here in agriculture um, that you're going to every single industry, as you said, has some kind of, um, you know, offputs here in the ag, ag, ag industry in the San Joaquin Valley. I mean, we have done major strides towards the improvement of air quality. Um, so whether it's, you know, agricultural burning and or replacing our tractor engines, our equipment engines to the newest available technologies before those tractors are actually expired, um, simply because we're trying to get to a positive um, uh, air place um, has made a, in my opinion, we have made a huge difference. I mean, it's been, it's truly meant the investment of billions of dollars to be able to accomplish what we've done there. But uh, it is amazing. It sounds like you're maybe a little newer to the San Joaquin Valley, um, but you you know, the days are clearer than what they used to be 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, do we have more to, um, more areas that need to be improved upon? Absolutely. But we're making those strides and we continue to invest in those areas. Um, we talked about the availability of water. Agriculture does use water. I mean, I'm not shy about that. We are, we do use water. I mean, in the state of California, approximately 40% of the water is utilized by the environment, approximately 40% is used by ag, and the other 20% is used by urban areas, uh, uh, municipalities. And so when I say that, it's the fact that we do use water and that is one of the by, you know, byproducts of agriculture. We need water. We need to have the ability of water. And it does at sometimes come to challenges towards you know, some of the conflicts in years like this year with drought. So we continue to try to figure out what those solutions might be. Um, you know, I think there's too often pesticides has become a dirty word. 
pesticides is in pesticides, by the way, is a very generic term for everything that's utilized within that area. Even organic agriculture utilizes pesticides. Um, but it's one of those things that it's become a dirty word. Pesticides has allowed what the incredible bounty of food that we have throughout the world um, since the late, you know, give or take since the uh, late 40s. Um, is, 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 is truly remarkable where we've come. Um, can pesticides be a bad thing? Absolutely, but it's also an extraordinarily important tool to be able to get better production there. And so when you talk about pesticide use, we continue to you know, evolve the type of pesticides we use, trying to find softer chemicals, targeted chemicals that um, really do a better job and have you know, little to no um, effect on the neighboring, whether it's neighbor, uh, neighboring communities or neighboring farms or whatever else. And so there's so many improvements that have happened there. Um, like every industry out there, we're a work in progress trying to make ourselves better. Um, and I'm excited for what the future holds for us. Um, again, there are limiting factors, the water being the big one, but uh, um, the promise of being able to be the um, not only an incredible producer like we are here, but doing it in such an environmentally sound manner is something my farmers take proud, uh, pride in. I mean, there's the regulatory side does put a big crimp on what they can do, but it also um, has forced innovation here that you really truly won't see in many other places in the world. Yeah, I, I think um, sometimes people get images in their head of like a big farmer and just they think of <laughs> they think of like a monocle and like the game of Monopoly or something. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we're all just people. And, you know, I I, you know, when we talk about these externalities and I was thinking through like incentives, like, uh, you know, how, why would you be incentivized to do something that, you know, is maybe more cost effective for you, but helps the environment? You know, I mean, some people probably will try and cut corners, but, um, I don't think that represents uh, our agricultural community because in, mo in, in large part, a lot of us that are working in this live in it, you know, yeah. like we live in the space that we work in. And, yeah. and and there's and there's that baseline reason. I of course, you know, regulation exists for those people that would try and cut those corners. Um, but I hope and I th I think you believe that uh, a lot of our farmers are here to work and live and want yeah. to live in a place that they uh, can be proud of. Um, so and one of those and one of those hats I wear that I, I I'm very proud of. I'm a farmer myself. So um, I, as, as, you know, kind of cliche thing to say, but it's like, you know, whatever I'm doing on this day-to-day -day job here at Fresno County Farm Bureau, I go home and face the ramifications on the farm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's a lifestyle, number one. I mean, I think we all know that the the reason so many of these folks that are involved in this agricultural community is because they, they want that lifestyle. Um, it's a lifestyle that they, you know, really cherish for their family. I'm fourth generation farmer on both sides of my family. And uh, in my particular case, I got the fifth generation out there with me every single night that I'm working. Um, we were out there last night, the night before, making sure that, you know, drip lines working as functionally uh, uh, great as possible, you know, checking out the almonds, making sure this year's crops going good. I mean, I'm teaching them along the way. And so for me, there is truly a legacy that I'm trying to leave this in a better spot for my, my kids, because I'm hopeful that I'll have one or two of them go into this agricultural industry. Yeah, I think uh, I think these conversations are important because I, you know, I see two movements towards a better future. You know, there's a movement uh, on the innovation side and efficiency side. And then, of course, we have the other, you know, kind of a more small scale, what we talked about before, these small scale farms that are doing things in maybe more, quote, 
you know, environmentally friendly or whatever uh, capacities. And I think, I think we can meet together in some future destination uh, because I think we're all going to the same place, which is we want uh, good food, good jobs, and a good environment to live in. Um, and I think, I think all of those, we're aligned in those values. And so I think having these conversations where we can just talk about the specifics is where uh, we can come together. But let's close with uh, talking about books. Uh, do you have any book recommendations uh, for listeners? It doesn't have to be about farming. Maybe it's something that you're interested in or good books that you've read recently. Well, it's probably not going to be a shocker to you. I, I mean, even my reading includes agriculture. Great. Um, and so, and, and by the way, we're going back to the restaurant conversation as well in the sense that I like to support local and, uh, and we got some incredible local ones. Um, you know, I can pick up essentially anything and everything Dr. Victor Davis Hanson writes and enjoy reading it um, just because of the way he analyzes things. And particularly he has several that are written on agriculture. He's a, a, a local boy, grew up in Selma, California and went on to uh, some bigger and better things, but still here resides on the farm. Um, pretty amazing. I, I, I love his reading. Um, we have Mas Matsumoto. Um, who is a farmer, very well known in this area. I love reading Moss's, not just his books, but also love reading his uh, columns. Just the, uh, you know, he's so, uh, there's probably nobody that's better to talk about the ancestry street importance to agriculture better than what Moss does. Um, you know, as far as, you know, columns, I mean, it's not focused on agriculture, but, you know, the, the success that Ruben Navaretti has had, um, you know, being a, the largest syndicated um, Hispanic columnist in, in, in America, and he's right here from Sanger, California. Um, I mean, those kind of things. I, I love supporting local and to see the successes, and they all have different, you know, points and ideologies as far as where they come from, but I think that's what... I still think we're able to have some of those civil conversations here in the San Joaquin Valley that they're maybe not having in other places, particularly throughout the state of California, but particularly, you know, when you look at the nation and there's just a lot of friction there, but I think it's, I think, I think within the agrarian side, there's just a, a more of a nature to like be able to talk and have conversations that we used to, you know, used to be a lot more common. And, and I think those folks do a very good job of being able to uh, give the perspectives of these Valley voices that uh, um, um, uh, I think really would, would, would add a lot to the rest of the nation if they were to listen to them. Absolutely. Um, just like what we, we produce a lot of great things uh, in the Central Valley and some of those things are known about um, and some are not. And I think there is, there's such a great literary community here and a lot of great reading to be done that's in terms of local writers, authors, thinkers, people with perspective. So I just wanna say thank you for coming on to talk with me, Ryan. This has been a great conversation. I think people are gonna get a lot of value out of this. So I appreciate you taking the time. No, thanks for having me, Jordan. I appreciate the, uh, what you're doing to help to uh, highlight the uh, incredible agricultural community we have here because uh, this is a discussion that just doesn't, as I said, doesn't take place enough. Absolutely. Fresno's best. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, you can support us by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best or by leaving us a rating and review. Both go a long way to helping this podcast be sustainable for the future. We'll see you next time.